from the Alaska Airlines Studio. Presented by 2020lifestyles.com. This is The Blitz. The first look at the top stories in Seattle sports. They don't make them like us. They're not like everybody else. The rundown on everything Seattle sports on your way to work. Swing and a fly ball. Deep right center field. He did it again. And the stories everyone is talking about. This is the Blitz at Six. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Blitz at Six. Lydia Cruz alongside with you Monday, April 20th. And it's here. The NFL virtual draft is upon us. Just a few days away here. Getting underway on Thursday. What will this look like exactly? Roger Goodell saying that you'll have to show up and see if people still boo him or manage to boo him. In the same way, it won't be the same as we know, but Roger Goodell announcing picks from his basement, well, I'm in on that. We got a little preview of what a draft might look like, at least uh, with the WNBA draft happening last Friday night. We'll recap that as well as last night. All eyes on ESPN and Netflix's 10-part documentary series, The Last Dance, chronicling the 97-98 Bulls season, Michael Jordan, And Phil Jackson, everything that happened with that team in Phil Jackson's sort of lame duck year there as the organization attempted to rebuild all the tension that happened between the front office and the players. But pretty incredible story. And we'll hear some of the best clips from that. It's all ahead in this hour. Right now, let's get to your headlines. Let's start with that. Since we have been missing sports on our television and The Last Dance giving us something unprecedented to watch last night, the first episodes of the 10-part documentary series done in partnership uh, between Netflix and ESPN premiered on Sunday. Uh, Episodes one and two, uh, Michael Jordan and the 97-98 Chicago Bulls at the center of it allowed NBA Entertainment to follow them throughout the season. We'll dig into the origin story of how this happened because it's pretty incredible, uh, but document their final championship together. The series features never-before-seen footage, interviews with more than 100 people close to the team and to the individual players, and the first two episodes really followed the rise of the dynasty uh, along with the fraying relationship between the team, the players, and the coach, and the front office. Uh, Here's a clip from yesterday's episode on the tension between then-GM Jerry Krause and Michael Jordan. Jerry Krause was the general manager of the Bulls, and he was certainly at the root of what made the tension of that season so severe. Jerry Krause was a scout for the White Sox. He was there when I bought the White Sox in 1981. And after I bought the Bulls, he, he came to see me, said he'd like to be the general manager of the Bulls. If everybody's ready, we can get started. I asked around the league, and uh, everybody I talked to said, don't touch the guy. So, yeah, he had a way of alienating people. But I wasn't hiring somebody to win a personality contest. I wanted somebody who truly believed in, in building a team the way I wanted to, and Krause was the guy. To his credit, he did his job. But Jerry had the little man problem. He grew up a little fat kid, not a lot of money. He was always the underdog. And he just couldn't control that part of him that needed credit. All the attention is going to Michael and Scotty and Venice and Phil. 
And Krauss was growing resentful about this. He was good, but he wasn't good enough to do it without Michael Jordan. So heading into that season, while actually while celebrating uh, the championship from the year before or the season from the year before, Michael Jordan in an interview showed this clip talking about the potential for rebuilding, the rebuilding rumors that he had heard at the time and managed to get uh, a shot at the Cubs in here. Michael, obviously, uh, in the wake of this incredible celebration, there'll be some very difficult business decisions. We're entitled to defend what we have until we lose it. If we lose it, then you look at it and you say, okay, let's change. Let's just go through a rebuilding. No one's guaranteeing rebuilding is going to be two or three, four or five years. Cubs have been rebuilding for 42 years. (laughs) If you want to look at this from a business thing, have a sense of respect for the people who have laid the groundworks so that you could be a profitable organization. I love this comment from Ramona Shelburne on ESPN. She said that Michael Jordan saying this publicly, that it should get to defend its title until it loses, that he is loyal to Phil Jackson, doesn't want to play for anyone else. And the fact that the Bulls didn't listen would never happen today. She said, stars are so much more powerful and valuable now than I suppose they were back then. The idea of an owner letting the team's general manager break apart a dynasty against the wishes of its superstar would be unthinkable in the modern era and have to agree. Uh, More on the last dance coming from Michael Jordan. He described how he didn't want to let someone who didn't put on a jersey as a player forget or disrespect those who did. We have just finished winning a fifth title. It's a lot of uncertainty. Their management started talking about the franchise is going to change or we're going to rebuild. I thought it was unfair. I would never let someone who's not putting on a uniform and playing each and every day dictate what we do on the basketball court. So, you know, my mentality was, let's put things aside, you know, from a business sense and focus on that craft. Let's give them a reason not to think that way. Also followed by a clip from 97 when Jordan was asked what their biggest struggle was going to be heading into the season. Michael Jordan waded into the undertone of bitterness on the Bulls when asked what the Bulls' biggest challenge would be this year. Um... <laughs> Michael glancing up at the office of GM Jerry Krause. So the tension very alive and well. And at the first two episodes, we got some of the origin stories of Scottie Pippen, of Michael Jordan, of the organization itself, but also flashing back in time with this 97 98 season. And the amount of footage, behind the scenes footage, even just of Jordan playing golf at certain times, someone who is so. Uh, protective of his privacy. This is pretty incredible. And how did it happen? The story also of the origins of the docuseries is incredible in its own right. It was basically an idea that originated with Andy Thompson back in 1997. He had been working with NBA Entertainment for about 10 years. He's the brother of former NBA player Michael Thompson and the uncle of Golden State Warriors guards and former Coug, Clay Thompson. So basically he pitched this idea to Adam Silver, 
at the currently the NBA commissioner, but at the time, back in 97, he was working as the head of NBA entertainment. He suggested Thompson did embedding a crew with the Chicago Bulls. Silver heard the pitch, liked the idea, made a couple phone calls, and then set things in motion for this unprecedented docuseries that we are seeing today. Silver uh, made those phone calls, but also had to get a lot of approval before this all happened. And and Thompson did as well. He luckily had some familiarity with Jordan, knew him from working at the Olympics in 1992 in Barcelona. Also, they had a few mutual friends in common, but what really might have been the kicker here, Andy Thompson knew that Jordan once idolized his brother, so much so that he wore puka shell necklaces and, and once wrote his name on a notebook as Michael Jordan, spelling it like Thompson's brother, M-Y-C-H-A-L. So basically, because of Jordan's respect and admiration for Thompson's brother, this was a huge reason why those two connected. Silver eventually also had to approach Bulls owner Jerry Reinsdorf. He had to convince Phil Jackson as well, who agreed with certain stipulations in terms of privacy. The crew wouldn't be around at certain times, would give him space. And then Jordan also had to sign off as well. So several levels of approval that had to happen. Also, there's the financial aspect uh, running that past by then Commissioner David Stern. Uh, They shot on high definition video that really didn't exist at the time, um, but they had plenty of costs accrued by this with the crew that was following them around. Uh, Thompson had already made the decision to chronicle the season on very costly, high quality film. They shot hundreds of hours of it. And, uh, and, and it's, it's incredible that this was also sitting around in a, in a locked vault at NBA entertainment uh, unearthed until the time of this project. Silver said many people, including Spike Lee and Danny DeVito, expressed interest in putting together a documentary over the years and that it became a running joke between he and Michael Jordan if it would ever be seen. Uh, nearly a quarter century later, that moment has arrived and we got the uh, first look at it yesterday. We'll be looking forward to the other eight episodes and plenty of discussion that come from that as well. Coming up on The Blitz, it is... NFL Draft Week. Uh, what do we know about what the Seahawks are doing? It's ahead right here on the Blitz on 710 ESPN Seattle. You're listening to The Blitz from the Alaska Airlines Studio. Welcome back to The Blitz at 6. Lydia Cruz alongside with you Monday, April 20th. Hopefully everybody had a a safe weekend and enjoyed the last dance on television last night. Adam Silver, a big part of that, not commissioner at the time, but head of NBA NBA Entertainment and pretty incredible. He was part of getting that documentary in motion. We also got to hear from Adam Silver recently on a conference call talking about the possibility of bringing basketball back. He said they are not ready to make any decisions about a potential return. I would say the sense of our board was that the safety, health, and well-being of our players, coaches, fans, everyone involved in our game is paramount. And that based on the reports we've got from various outside officials, current public health officials, and Dr. Ho and, and Bob Iger, that we are not in a position to make any decisions, and it's unclear when we will be. 
Adam Silver saying there's still a lot of uncertainty surrounding return to play. There's a lot of data that's, that, that all has to be melded together to help make these decisions. But I think that that's part of the uncertainty. I think we're not even at the point where we can say if only A, B, and C were met, then there's, it's, then there's a clear path. I think there's, there's still too much uncertainty at this point to say precisely how we move forward. I'll add that the underlying principle just remains health, safety, and well-being of NBA players and everyone involved. I mean, that, that we begin with that as paramount, and then the decision tree moves forward from there. Adam Silver, NBA commissioner, saying owners want the season to resume if it is safe for players. My sense of the NBA team owners is that if they can be part of a movement to restart our economy that includes the NBA, they almost see that as a specific obligation. I think, though, on the other hand, there is no appetite to compromise the well-being of our players. And so in terms of priorities, if you begin with safety, we're not at a point yet where we have a clear protocol and a clear path forward where we feel that we can sit down with the players and say, this is a way to resume the season. And without that, we really haven't engaged in discussions about whether or not it's better or worse to begin focusing on next season. I can say that, you know, I think all these team owners are in this business because they love the game, they love the competition. And I know from my conversation with the players, they feel the same way. But when you're dealing with human life, that trumps anything else we could possibly be talking about. And that's sort of where the conversation began and ended today. Silver also on the possibility of starting the NBA playoffs when they do it, it return. Absolutely still an option. I mean, everything is on the table. I mean, it's clear that if we were to resume play, we're looking at going significantly later than June, which is historically when our season and draft would have been completed. So the direction that the league office has received from our teams is, again, that all rules are off at this point, given the situation we find ourselves in and that the country is in, and that if there is an opportunity to resume play, even if it looks different than what we've done historically, we should be modeling it. Bob Costas on ESPN Radio, I believe, over the weekend, talking about his take on things. He doesn't believe that sports will be back this year. If I had to guess, and it would at best be an educated guess, I am very skeptical about the possibility of any team sports in calendar year 2020. I think each of the commissioners is wise to have contingency plans. Best case, most optimistic, worst case, and everything in between have various contingency plans so we've heard about them usually it's been about baseball but i've heard some with the nfl uh, there's not going to be any college football or basketball that's out but with the pro sports uh you hear possible ways that um the nba could have its playoffs uh, all taking place in one place with everybody isolated in the nhl we heard about north dakota and they're right to have all these plans but there are so many potential pitfalls attached to each of them, that I'll believe it when I see it. Bob Costa saying there's still so much uncertainty, echoing Adam Silver's point, and then Jeff Passon, too, over the weekend, 
uh, ESPN baseball writer, talking about the process of getting baseball back, potential for it. Well, the hurdles from the start, Greeny, have been enormous. But right now, Major League Baseball is being exceedingly judicious about how it tries to roll out a plan. They're talking with epidemiologists. They're talking with scientists. They're talking with people from whom they can get the medical information straight. Once they have that figured out, they can take the financial plan and what all of this is going to cost and bring it to ownership. And if ownership is on board with it, at that point, it goes to the players. Danny O'Neill, our, our own, uh, has said recently that he wishes in an ideal world, people would have the option at this point to choose whether they want to work at this time or stay home if they want. In an ideal world, well, Jeff Passan also echoing some of that when he spoke about players being able to choose to play or not. He said players should be vocal and speak out if they want to play or not. I think it's important just for discourse, Greeny. Like, these are the issues that players should be talking about. And for every Mike Trout out there, there's a player from the Dominican Republic who leaves his family behind for eight months out of the year. You have all of these different perspectives. And we have to remember, as prevalent as Mike Trout's voice is, there are 1,200 players in the MLBPA. There are 1,200 opinions, 1,200 voices. And all of those over the coming weeks are certain to be heard because if they're going to play, this looks like the likeliest path and they have to figure out how to make sure everybody, or at least as close to everybody as possible, is happy with what they have. Then you've got NCAA, which is dealing with a whole different set of circumstances. And Big 12 Commissioner Bob Bowlesby recently talking about, is it possible to have athletic contests when school is not physically in session? There aren't students in school. They're still continuing with virtual learning. But is it too much of an ask to have players playing games, even if there's no fans in the stadium, because there's no students at school? The question was asked at one point, uh, can you play football if school's not in session? And I, and I think the answer is no. These are student-athletes that uh, are there for an education, and, and uh, it's unlikely to happen. If online learning becomes uh, the, the coin of the realm, and, and if that uh, can be satisfactorily implemented, I, I suppose it's theoretically possible that, uh, that there could be some contests. But, you know, if it's not safe for fans to be in the stands, one has to wonder if it's really safe for, um, for young people to be uh, banging heads and, and in close proximity to one another. So, you know, there, there's very little certainty in our world right now, and I think this, uh, this question is a really good example of that. Coming up on The Blitz, still to look at the NFL virtual draft that's going to be happening this week. Roger Goodell's comments about booing him virtually, also the WNBA draft taking place and giving us a look at what a virtual draft might look like last Friday night. It's ahead on The Blitz right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. From the Alaska Airlines studio, this is The Blitz. Welcome back to The Blitz at 6. Lydia Cruz alongside with you Monday, April 20th. Don't want to interrupt TMX. Jeff Schwartz of SiriusXM of ESPN Radio joining Bob, Dave, and more recently to talk about 
uh, the devaluation of running backs and an article that he had recently written. But those guys, very curious his take. Here's Jeff Schwartz. We love talking football with this guy. He's never short of an opinion. You can catch him on Sirius ESPN Radio. He writes for uh, SB Nation. And he's with us on the Zeke's Pizza Hotline. He is Jeff Schwartz. Jeff, how are you, man? I am great. How are you guys uh, holding up in uh, stay-at-home quarantine life? We're, we're doing okay. We're all at our separate residences here, so there's a little bit of a delay, so bear with us. But outside of that, we're all healthy. We got the show going, so all is well. Um, wanted to hit uh, what you just wrote about because it's been a big topic, talking about running backs and, and just sort of the devaluing of running backs outside of Christian McCaffrey, who got a, a, a different kind of deal, and he's a different kind of running back. But for the people that didn't get a chance to read what you wrote about running backs, just give us a little summary of, of, of what you had there. Yeah, so, you know, there's this debate. I, I don't know, honestly, I don't think it's even a debate anymore. Uh, the running back position, um, having a first-round draft pick um, and or players on second contracts, you know, either via guys you re-signed or for agency, do not lead to a productive rushing attack. You do not need superior, superior talent in that position to have a good rushing attack. Other positions, left tackle, yeah, you probably need a first-rounder. Quarterback, probably need a first-rounder. Pass rusher, probably need a first-rounder, right? But other, but running back, you don't. And the reason why is the game has evolved now to where running the football is only done when you have an advantage in numbers. So if you have six offensive linemen to block, you have six defenders, you run the ball. If you have seven in the box, you throw the ball. And it used to be when you just run the ball. It didn't matter how many guys were in the box. You called and you run it. Now, I'm not sure the Seahawks' philosophy is this, but most of the NFL, the philosophy is, hey, we're going to pass the ball if there's too many guys for our blockers to block. And that's why you don't need a top guy anymore. You're only running the ball into a good advantage. And when I entered the NFL in, in, in 2008, you need to have that special guy at running back because he had to make the extra guy miss. He had to make the guy that we were not blocking miss in the hole to get yards. Now you don't do that anymore. You don't have guys that are free running at the running back anymore. Jeff, I, I thought for sure you were going to say as an ex-offensive lineman that, you know, anybody can run through, you know, the holes as long as the offensive linemen are there <laughs> opening the holes. But, <laughs> yeah, let, let me ask you, though, about about Christian McCaffrey, because they threw him the ball like 142 times, and I don't think the Seahawks had a receiver that was targeted that many times, and he's your running back. So I, I guess you're thinking that that's – is that money that was poorly spent, even though they do use him so much in the passing game with Christian McCaffrey? Yes. I'll explain two reasons why it's poorly spent. One is that when you look at his receiving numbers, and this is what Panthers fans will scream at you, right? He's a receiving back. He does special things. Well, first of all, he's, his average yards per reception is like 8.7, which would put him at the bottom end of any wide receiver, right? So if you're going to treat him like a wide receiver – his stats better better support that. But when you dig deeper into the numbers that he puts up, um, he's had 15 games in his career where he's had 10 or more targets, right? That's a lot for right. That's even a lot for some wide receivers, right? 10 or more targets. The Panthers have lost 14 of those 15 games, and often they're not even close. So the numbers are empty stats, right? If we were to say a quarterback got a big majority 
of his passing yards down three scores in the fourth quarter, you would say, you know what? I don't really want to pay that quarterback garbage stats. But for Christian McCaffrey, it's a plus. It's, it's a reason why they should go ahead and, and pay him. And secondly is you know, we're a hard cap league, right? Other leagues don't have hard caps, okay? So we have a hard cap. and you have, I know the cap goes up every year, and I get it. But the $16 million they spent a year could have been spent on, let's say, Byron Jones, a quarterback out of Dallas, who signed with the Dolphins, 16.5 a year. That's a premium position. Go get yourself clowny. Go get yourself someone like an edge rusher, a pass rusher, a corner, an offensive lineman. Like, get yourself, spend that money on a premium position, not a running back. That was Jeff Schwartz on with Bob, Dave, and more. Full interview available for you online, 710sports.com. The NFL draft is coming up faster than we think this week, this Thursday, and it's going to be a production of sorts. We'll dig into that in the hot list. I'll tell you just how ESPN is planning to pull this off. I'll just say that they typically have 10 remote locations during the first round, and this Thursday there might be as many as 180 that they are trying to manage. So we'll dig into that in a second. But last Friday night, the WNBA draft uh, happening and taking place, and it was our first look at what a virtual draft uh, will be. New York Liberty, you are on the clock. That's Kathy Engelbert, WNBA commissioner, announcing the picks and probably zero surprise on who went number one overall to the New York Liberty. With the first pick in the 2020 WNBA draft, the New York Liberty select Sabrina Ionescu from the University of Oregon. Guard Sabrina Ionescu, who who played for the Oregon Ducks, on being drafted first overall. Yeah, I mean, it's a blessing, and I'm just blessed to be able to spend this time with my family, my coach, and uh, Bill Duffy. And so I'm just really blessed to be able to be in this position that I've worked so hard for my entire life. Also had a pretty close relationship with Kobe Bryant. Kobe, a a big advocate for women's basketball. And uh, Sabrina, on what Kobe would say to her being drafted first overall. He would be happy and proud. And and he's looking down, smiling on on me and all of us right now. And so just super proud and happy to be able to to be a professional. And it's something that, you know, we trained for and talked about for a really long time. And so I'm just happy to, to take on that mama mentality into the next phase of my life. Kathy Engelbert, too, uh, talking about honoring Gigi Bryant and her teammates in a really special moment during that draft. These athletes represented the future of the WNBA, players who were following their passions, acquiring knowledge of the game, exhibiting skills that were way beyond their years. They represented the next generation of stars in our league, maybe what might have been called the Mambasita generation. While it brings us pain not to see their dreams come to fruition, I'm grateful and proud to announce them tonight as honorary draft picks. In the 2020 WNBA draft, in alphabetical order, the WNBA selects Alyssa Altabelli Guard from Newport Beach, California. Second, the WNBA selects Gianna Gigi Bryant Guard from Newport Beach, California. And with the third honorary pick, the WNBA selects Peyton Chester, forward, from San Juan Capistrano, California. Really cool moment on Friday. Congrats to all the people who were drafted and saw their dreams come true. How will this week's draft play out for the NFL? As I mentioned, 180 remote locations. What that's going to be like to film and how... 
people will still manage to boo Roger Goodell next in the hot list right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. You're listening to The Blitz from the Alaska Airlines studio. It's time for The Hot List. Holy mackerel! The headlines for the day in sports every morning at 645. Heck yes! What are we missing here? A full breakdown of the top stories of today on your morning drive. Let's go! According to Adam Schefter, the Jacksonville Jaguars have been... In trade discussions with other teams about potentially trading running back Leonard Fournette, the Jags have until May 4th excuse me, to exercise their fifth-year option on Fournette. He's scheduled to make $4.16 million in base in 2020. He ran for a career high just over 1,100 yards, caught a team-high 76% of passes last season, but only had three touchdowns. His yards from scrimmage ranked sixth in the NFL in 2019. Earlier this week, Fournette was on social media and said that he wanted the Jaguars to sign free agent quarterback Cam Newton. Some people scratching their head at that one and uh, were wondering if that meant he didn't believe in Gardner Minshew. Um, Didn't take too uh, kindly to people in the Pacific Northwest area, I'm sure. But Peter Burns speaking over the weekend, talking about, uh, are the Jaguars officially tanking? Fournette last week was making a pitch, not for Gardner Minshew, his quarterback. He was making a pitch for Cam Newton to join the Jacksonville Jaguars, saying, hey, come on over here. Not a great look. But I can't believe that at that point it's so much harm to where the Jags are not are going to say, you know what, we got to get rid of him, and we're looking to trade him at this point. Jacksonville fully well knows that they have no chance next year, that they're already mailing this in. And at, on, on the base level, to me, if I'm the Jacksonville Jaguars and a fan, I'm loving this right now because you're getting rid of a good player. This is a win-win situation. The Jags are going to be a worse team because of this and can land the overall number one pick next year and get Trevor Lawrence. And Leonard Fournette finally gets to go to a place that doesn't suck. That was Peter Burns. Peyton Manning, he's giving some advice to Joe Burrow, uh, says that he's going to take some lumps in his rookie year, but those rough times, well, they can propel him to success. Manning was, of course, the number one overall pick by the Colts in 1998. He was on SportsCenter yesterday to talk about Joe Burrow calling him up for some advice, and here's what Peyton said. I tried to tell him it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. Look, I lost more games my rookie year than I had my entire high school and college career combined. I threw 26 interceptions, but I tried to learn a lot that year. I played every game. Jim Moore never took me out. I learned some things in the fourth quarter of those blowouts about what it took to be an NFL quarterback. And the next year, we went from 3-13 and to 13-3. and That wouldn't have happened had I not hung in there and kind of learned the ropes as a rookie, even though we took some bumps and bruises. So that's what I try to encourage Joe and all the NFL quarterbacks, that your rookie year is not going to be uh, the same as your senior year in college. Also told Burrow that his future team, well, there's a reason that they're picking number one. He called me about some of the things that I tried to do when I was a rookie that maybe he can uh, apply to his NFL career. Looks like it's going to be with the Cincinnati Bengals. And look, what I told him, I said, Joe, uh, when you're the first pick in the NFL draft, you are going to a team that has really earned the first pick in the NFL draft. Uh, 
there are going to be some holes there. And there's a reason the Colts were picking number one that year. There's a reason the Bengals are picking number one this year, the Giants, when they had Eli. Uh, but Peyton Manning also with some thoughts on Tom Brady now moving to the NFC. I'm a little surprised he jumped over to the NFC. I always see Tom Brady as an AFC guy, so he's going to have to go through initiation uh, to learn the ropes of the NFC. Uh, but they got a great team around him, it sounds like. Bruce Arians was my quarterback's coach um, in that rookie season in my first few years in the NFL. Tom Moore, my offensive coordinator, is down there. Clyde Christensen. So uh, Tom's going down to get coached by some guys that I'm very familiar with, guys that know football, that love football. The NFL draft, speaking of which, uh, giving Burrow advice and Burrow's night, probably going to be pretty remarkable on Thursday. So is the entire event itself. And we'll dig into some of the specifics of how that production will actually happen. But up first, we get to hear from Lindsay Theory, who does a great job covering the L.A. Rams for ESPN. Also just a really nice person. Uh, But she talked over the weekend about if she has any concerns with the Rams drafting virtually. I know last week they were concerned because uh, Sean McVay's house apparently doesn't have a hard wire for a a phone jack um, for for a telephone. (laughs) Uh, So that was, who would have thought, right? Uh, So that was the big concern was finding uh, a Hardwire for a phone jack, um, but other than that, I mean, the Rams have great IT people, so I think they'll be able to figure it out. They seem pretty uh, technologically savvy outside of Les Snead, who, who tends to make a, a lot of jokes about his abilities with technology, but um, I think they're pretty confident that they'll be able to pull it together like every other team in the league. I would joke at this time about my uh, technological ineptitude. Why not? You know, just put some misinformation out there. Uh, But Lindsay Theory also talking about the contract status and talks that the Rams have had with Jalen Ramsey. Where are they at? Rams have said that uh, they've spoken with Jalen's representative. They're all on the same page. Uh, However, they won't reveal what page that is. Um, The Rams have really kind of stuck by... Uh, the phrase that they're taking kind of one step at a time, they are getting through free agency, now it's the draft. Once they get through that, then they will start looking at those extensions. Um, but obviously the Rams gave up two first-round picks to trade for Jalen Ramsey. Um, so a lot of the leverage is in Jalen's corner um, as they go to negotiate a, a long-term extension. And if you're the Rams, um, it looks like you really do have to get a deal done. Otherwise, um, it's going to really be a curious decision why you gave up two first-round picks for him. The return of sports is on all of our minds, but wanting them to be as safe as possible. Adam Silver, NBA commissioner, speaking on that recently, and the NBA really on the forefront of of things, and sort of forced to be because Rudy Gobert testing positive, the NBA acting very quickly and suspending the season. Uh, but Adam Silver on a conference call, he was adamant yet again that they are not ready to make decisions on the return. There's just simply too much uncertainty surrounding the return to play at this time. There's a lot of data that's, that, that all has to be melded together to help make these decisions. But I think that that's part of the uncertainty. I think we're not even at the point where we can say if only A, B, and C were met, then there's, there's a clear path. I think there's, there's still too much uncertainty at this point to say precisely how we move forward. I'll add that the underlying principle just remains health, safety, and well-being of NBA players and everyone involved. I mean, that, that we begin with that as paramount, and then the decision tree moves forward from there. 
ESPN's Adrian Wojnarowski talking about when players will know if games are canceled. I'm told that the union told the players today that they would expect to know if games are canceled and how many games are canceled by June 15th. And certainly I think that's a date that makes a lot of sense. It would be hard to be that deep into the springtime and have not played games and think that you could make up the full complement of them. I think the league may know even sooner than June 15th, but that was a date that the Players Association targeted with their players today. June 15th, according to Woj. Um, He also spoke about the uh, NBA their decision to withhold or planning to withhold player salary. Beginning with the players' paychecks on May 15th, the league can withhold uh, 25% of their salary, and that will run right through the end of the year. And essentially, it's an escrow account. In the event that the league has to cancel regular season games, they're going to take back essentially 1% of a player's salary per game. Now, if the NBA ends up playing these games, if they resume the season, they play them all, the players get the money back. If they only play some of the games, the players only get some of the money back. And this allows the league ultimately to not have to be chasing players around for the money later. And it allows the players to be able to kind of budget for the fact that they may have to give this money back and not have to do it all at once. Pretty unique solution there. Um, Also, when it comes to baseball, we've heard a few different plans. In effect, we've heard that Dr. Fauci is supportive of the isolation plan that MLB presented. Jeff Passan on ESPN over the weekend saying the process of getting baseball back, well, it does begin with getting players on board. And he also talked about how players should speak out if they want to play or not, because that is a decision that may vary Uh, depending on your financial situation, on your family situation. I think it's important just for discourse, Greeny. Like, these are the issues that players should be talking about. And for every Mike Trout out there, there's a player from the Dominican Republic who leaves his family behind for eight months out of the year. You have all of these different perspectives. And we have to remember, as prevalent as Mike Trout's voice is, there are 1,200 players in the MLBPA. There are 1,200 opinions, 1,200 voices. And all of those over the coming weeks are certain to be heard because if they're going to play, this looks like the likeliest path and they have to figure Figure out how to make sure everybody, or at least as close to everybody as possible, is happy with what they have. One thing that will roll on the NFL draft this week. It starts on Thursday, and of course, listen to all your NFL draft coverage right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. But this production might be one of the most ambitious in ESPN's and the NFL Network's history with the NFL closing team complexes and canceling plans to hold the draft live in Las Vegas. This year's event will feature a ton of remote locations. ESPN Vice President of Production Seth Markman says there's typically 10 remote locations during the first round of a broadcast. Um, But on Thursday night, there will be as many as 180 that they have to manage. ESPN and NFL Network will air a combined broadcast all three days, and it will originate from ESPN's headquarters in Bristol, Connecticut. Most of the reporters and analysts will be at their homes, and the biggest challenge being that they have to make sure there aren't any technical difficulties from simple to complex. Reporters have been able to get on air and use those video chat features for nearly a month. You've seen it on ESPN and NFL Network. Draft prospects, coaches, and GMs, they received kits from the league to allow them uh, to set up at-home broadcasts. Um, 
The league also has set up three call centers to handle the various feeds, one for prospects, one for coaches and team executives, and another for fans. They've reached out to various wireless providers to make sure that the bandwidth capacity will be able to handle this for all three days so the grid isn't overloaded. And then you've got Roger Goodell introducing the first-round picks from his home in Bronxville, New York. Will they pipe in booing? That is still remains to be seen, but I'm sure plenty of uh, at-home people and virtually on Twitter will be doing that. Uh, there are normally 15 people that manage this in the control room, but there will only be seven. They will uh, use two different control rooms to maintain those social distancing guidelines. They'll wear masks as well, which imagine that that's going to be an extra challenge for producers and directors who are trying to communicate, but you have to adhere to those safety standards. So uh, this will be pretty incredible. The draft also will serve as a draft-a-thon of sorts to pay tribute to first responders, to healthcare workers out there on the front lines and help raise funds uh, to support six national nonprofits and their COVID-19 relief efforts. So it kicks off on Thursday. Pretty incredible. What we got to witness last night was also pretty incredible. The start of ESPN and Netflix's 10-part documentary series, The Last Dance, chronicling Michael Jordan and the 1997-1998 Chicago Bulls in pursuit of yet another championship Uh, Episodes one and two aired yesterday, and you really saw the origins of this dynasty, especially the origins of Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen. Um, But the way that the tension was uh, created between the front office and the players and uh, this clip from Michael Jordan back in 1997 uh, when asked about the potential for rebuilding. Michael, obviously, uh, in the wake of this incredible celebration there'll be some very difficult business decisions we're entitled to defend what we have until we lose it if we lose it then you look at it and you say okay let's change let's just go through a rebuilding no one's guaranteeing rebuilding it's going to be two or three four or five years cubs have been rebuilding for 42 years (laughs) if you want to look at this from a business thing have a sense of respect for the people who have laid the groundworks so that you could be a profitable organization. Still managed to get a Cubs burn in there, Michael, uh, from an interview back in 1997. And I love Ramona Shelburne's point online saying that uh, this would never happen in the modern day era because of the way that stars wield power. And a, a star player, a generational player, saying that they won't play for any other coach than Phil Jackson, that they are entitled to defend their title until it loses. Um, and then that not being responded to by the front office, that wouldn't happen today. It's a pretty incredible story. We still have eight more episodes to go, and we'll keep you updated on all of them here on 710 ESPN Seattle. That's a wrap for the hot list and the entire Blitz at 6 Hour. Danny and Gallant coming your way next right here on 710 ESPN Seattle.